We started a new series last week. Uh, we called it Union. Jesse was talking about it a little bit this morning. And specifically, we want to spend the next few months kind of discussing what it is to commune with God. Um, what does that mean? What does that phrase mean? Uh, and really, as we look at it, this is what we're really talking about. This series seeks to aim, uh, aim, to aim at what it means to cultivate a sense of God's nearness. We know that this isn't simply about God's proximity, but rather about reliance and trust and fellowship with God, a relationship with God. The sweetness of our relationship with Christ is not to be found in simple sins forgiven or eternity promised, uh, but rather a renewed relationship with God is the marrow of our Christian faith. And we want to kind of dig into all of that. Okay, I'm going to hit you with a John Owen quote. And he was a Puritan from like centuries ago. And he says this about communion. Let's be patient here because there's a bunch of ETH endings here, right? Our communion then with God consists in his communication of himself unto us with our return unto him of that which he requireth and accepteth, flowing from that union which is in Christ we have with him. In short, our communion with God is about a true relationship with him. It's hearing from God and it's responding to God as you would a friend or a neighbor or someone else that you interact with every day. This sweetness of relationship is, is codified, so, so to speak, as in terms in, of just giving and taking with God, of, of this union that we have with Christ and then communion with God. Mike Cosper tells this story from a church out in California uh, that he was attending, uh, this friend of his was attending this church, and all of a sudden, uh, kind of as this climax to the service, these, these feathers started to fall from the ceiling. And they claimed that these were feathers of angels, right? And so there's this experience that's happening. It's kind of a famous experience right now. Uh, this particular church is kind of known for this. And, and what happens is this, this guy is there at this service, and he's sitting there, and all of a sudden these feathers start falling down from the ceiling, this uh, idea that the angels are present and whatever else. And this woman next to this guy actually pushes him out of the way, shoves him out of the way, grabs a feather, and then eats it. <laughs> and you kind of go, that's a little off, Right? something a little strange about that. And it kind of highlights, too, for us that there's a, an experience that we, we kind of try to produce at times. There's a, a way that we go about our worship that we're, we're actually kind of, um, kind of lost our center in the midst of all of that, haven't we? It brings to mind a larger question. What does it mean to mingle with the divine? What does it mean for us to have true relationship with God? Should it, should it be defined by services with angel feathers and, and angel dust and all of these other things? Well, uh, gold dust. Angel dust is a drug. Excuse me. A gold dust is what I was thinking of. Angel dust, something completely different. Wow. You can tell I grew up in the suburbs, right? Should it be defined by these things, these kind of uh, phenomena that are just kind of otherworldly? Or should our relationship be defined by something uh, more concrete? Because some of us, we might err to the opposite side. In all of our modernism, and all of our calculations, and all of our um, kind of reasoning and rationale, we might just totally push to the other side that there's nothing outside of what we see, smell, and touch in this world. 
See, this illustration and so many other illustrations show us the wrong-headedness that exists in our, our worship and in our, in our understanding of how we relate to God. We, we really need to kind of get down to brass tacks and kind of define exactly what communion with God looks like. What does it look like for, for us to, as we said, mingle with the divine? And this morning, what I want to do is, is really carve out a place for us to say, let's start first and talk about what those hindrances are to communion with God. I think we might start here and say, what is it that keeps us out of communion with God? Because as we saw in Genesis, God created us to kind of relate to him, right? He created Adam and Eve. He walked with them in the cool of dark, the garden. They had this sense of deep communion with God, didn't they? Well, what happened? How did we have that relationship with God broken? And how do we understand it now that we don't naturally have communion with God? See, we must also understand the means by which God has made for us to come back into communion with God. And, and this week and also in the weeks coming up here, in the next few weeks, we'll talk more about what it means to be united with Christ in faith and, faith and what that means for our communion with God. But overall, here's our big idea. You can see it, it's in your bulletin, in your email, or it's on the screen behind me. Big idea is this, that Jesus' voice calls us out of our sinful motive, our sinful mind, and our sinful morals. Once again, we are going with this alliteration theme. I feel very Baptist in this, and I feel affirmed that I found three letter M's to go together, right? We have motive problems, we have mind problems, we have morality problems, and God's going to kind of bring this to the surface, specifically as we see these two different phases that Paul speaks in our text. In verses 17 through 19, we're going to see that we're alienated from God, and we're going to kind of just spell out and unpack exactly what that means. Paul, in, in all of the beauty of this text, kind of brings these issues to the surface. We're going to pick those off and kind of understand them and kind of inspect them. But secondly, in verses 20 through 24, he kind of gives us the antidote. We are restored by Christ's voice, and we'll kind of unpack exactly how that looks. And so here we are, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 19. Read with me at verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their mind. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. See, Paul calls these Ephesians, and he starts off, and he calls them to no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And the first thing he says, right out of the gate in verse 17, he says this, uh, first I, I I say and I testify in the Lord. That is, Paul is giving all of his apostolic authority to this issue. He wants us to kind of clue ourselves in. It's as if to say, hey, listen up. This is important. I want you to listen to this. And second, he goes on to kind of give this clear uh, statement in verse 17, right? He says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. That word walk has been really important throughout the book of Ephesians. In fact, when we went through the book of Ephesians last year, we saw the importance of this. And, and even in this chapter or so, in chapter 4, verse 1, you can kind of scroll your eyes back up there. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, the Lord, 
the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, right? Paul calls them to walk worthily. Here in verse 17, he calls them to not walk like Gentiles walk. And then in chapter 5, verse 2, he wants to spell out again what that walk should look like. He says, um, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Paul is very concerned with this metaphor of walking, that we methodically put one foot in front of the other, so to speak, in obedience to Christ, and that we no longer walk in this kind of methodical gentileness or this methodical sinfulness. And so the natural question then from verse 17 is, how do Gentiles walk? Right? A very natural question. And Paul's going to lay this out in verses 18 and 19. So he rips off a number of descriptors here. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. They're ignorant. They are hard of heart. They've become callous in verse 19. And Paul lays out a few prepositions for us. If you're like me and you don't remember what a preposition is, it's a, a, a spatial word. It gives us a sense of orientation between these phrases. And look at verse 18 with me. We see the words because of. They were alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that was in them due to their hardness of heart. Now, that word because of and due to, it's the same term. It's the word dia. It means because of or due to. You could have put that one together by yourself, right? See, the result is an emphasis on causality. What Paul's really getting at is he's laying out kind of a descriptor of how these terms relate to one another. And here's a, a kind of a diagram of all of this. Underneath all of this, in verse 18, we have alienation from God. That's the result of all of these things. But that's first caused by the hard heart in verse 18, right, due to the hardness of their heart. And that's caused by their ignorance, or that causes the ignorance within us. In verse 19, he goes on and he describes the impurity of our character. Now, if we look at these terms and we say, hard heart, that's our motivation. Ignorance is our mind. Impurity is our moral. Right? And all of this kind of shows us that we are wholly affected by our sinful humanity, that we see these things in relation to one another. They start with the hardness of heart that is due to our sin, and then they cloud our mind. They cloud our morality. So to summarize, what Paul is saying here is that we have a state of alienation from God and because we are ignorant, and we're ignorant because we're hard-hearted, right? Does that make sense? Are you tracking with me here this morning? Well, what Paul wants to do is he wants to kind of lay out these terms. And so let's kind of dig in. We're going to start off with what it means to be hard-hearted. We've said this is a motivational Issue. Paul Tripp is one of my favorite authors. He describes that, that the Bible's use of the word heart is, is really referring to what he calls our causal core. That when we're talking about the heart, we're talking about motivations. Uh, we, we hear about it all the time throughout the scriptures, right? The Bible in Matthew 12 says that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Or Proverbs chapter 4, guard your heart for from it flow the issues of life. But Paul specifically tells us here that we don't just have a heart, we have a, a hardened heart. That, that this heart has become kind of calcified through the sinfulness that we possess. 1 John 3 describes what sin is. It says that sin is lawlessness. In some sense, we are obstinate to the work of God in our sin. 
Sometimes we think about this. We think, because uh, we talk a lot in our circle about, you know, we're sinners, we're, we're in need of grace. We do this every Sunday morning. We talk about uh, how we're in need of grace. We confess our need of grace before God. And a lot of times we, we just center around this idea of, oh, we're sinners. We're, we're dirty, rotten, no good sinners. And we think to ourselves, what that means is, if left to myself, I would be face down in a ditch in Mexico. Like, if left to myself, I would just become absolutely vile and worthless. I would become just a, a horrible human being. And the truth is probably something different. Actually, you and I tend to embrace respectable sinfulness, don't we? We tend to put our arms around sins that allow us to maintain the respect of others while also enjoying the fruits of our rebellion against God. Isn't that the perfect thing in, in our sinful mind is that we would uh, be able to kind of relate to one another well and with respect, but also harbor an info, inner sinfulness, an uh, interior life that values rebellion against God might kind of illustrate this with, with the word stiff-necked. If you go back in Exodus, remember Exodus, there's this story of the people of God, and, and Moses climbs the mountain and he receives the words, right? Remember Charleston Heston, he climbs the mountain and he receives uh, the Ten Commandments from God. And when he comes down, he finds that they've made this golden calf. And sure enough, you know, uh, God is... is, is not pleased with this action. And, and Moses returns to the presence of God, and he starts to advocate before God, and God describes them this way. He says that these people are a stiff-necked people. And you start to think about that. What is that, stiff-necked people? Well, God uses the very idol that they've made, the calf that they worship, to describe the people that worship it. Think about a cow. When you try to pull a cow somewhere, it doesn't want to go. Not that I have a whole lot of experience with this in my life. But when you try to pull a cow somewhere where it doesn't go, it, it pulls itself in the opposite way. It stiffens its neck. It, it becomes obstinate. Well, God is describing the people of Israel, and by default us as well, as those who reject and rebel and strain against the will and desire of God. We might not have a thirst for, for uh, drug usage or, or uh, a bold, blatant racism in our heart, but we do have a stiff neck before God. We have an obstinance that shows itself out before God. Does that make sense? When we talk about a hardened heart, we might not see ourselves given over to large degree sins. But we might find ourselves given over to quiet sins that retain our respect and our social circles. He goes on. He doesn't just describe us as hard-hearted. He describes us as ignorant. In verse 18, he says uh, they were alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Now, this is a, a combination word. It comes from the word agnosis. We, we hear that term diagnosis all the time. That's through knowledge, dia, through, gnosis, knowledge. Well, agnosis means without knowledge, that because we are hardened, our understanding is without knowledge. If our hardened heart was about our motive, our ignorance describes our mind. Paul describes our natural mind most clearly in 1 Corinthians 2, right? He says, the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit, that there is something in us that, that doesn't understand the things of God because of the hardness of 
our heart. Naturally, we don't understand spiritual things. And since the creator of this universe is himself spiritual, confusion about our world abounds, doesn't it? Theologically, we have this term for it. The word nous is the word mind in the Greek. So we describe the noetic effects of sin. Our mind is affected by our sinfulness. Such that Paul here describes us as ignorant. I was thinking this morning about how do we illustrate this? How do we get this so that it's tangible in, in our minds and in our hearts? Do you remember the cartoons? Do you remember like Bugs Bunny would be out in the, the desert? This is deeply theological now, right? We're talking Bugs Bunny, Warner Brothers. He's out in the desert and he thinks he sees water. Right, And he goes and he starts lapping up the water and then suddenly that mirage kind of disappears and all of a sudden it comes true that he's like shoving sand into his mouth, right? This is what it is to be ignorant in our sin. We, we think that we see something that exists, but actuality, in all actuality, we, we actually are just uh, doing something that's even more harmful than when we began. Because our hearts are obstinate to God, Uh, Our minds are prone to give undue importance to created things. So our minds are affected. Our motives are affected. Finally, in verse 19, we describe, Paul describes us as impure. Look at verse 19, what he says there. He says, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Says that we're we're callous. You ever form a callus on your hands after a day of hard work, or if you're a guitar player, you form calluses on the end of your fingers. There's a story about Stevie Ray Vaughan who played so hard all night. I love these kind of stories, I don't know why, but played so hard at a bar one night that he literally, his fingers were bleeding. So at a break, he uh, super glued his fingertips back together and kept playing, right? I don't know why those things entertained me. Probably it was the drugs that kept him playing, but that's a whole other story. See, we had given ourselves to every impurity. We became callous to the, the negative effects of this impurity that was in our life. We, we had just embraced these things in such a way that we just didn't even consider the ramifications in our own heart and mind. Just consider our world for a second. There's every kind of vice imaginable. Whether you're in the red light district of Amsterdam or the streets of Washington, D.C., every kind of corruption is available to us. And as we press further and further into our godlessness, into our separation from God, we become more and more inventive with our sinfulness. See, all of this kind of brings something to the surface about who we are. This is what the, what the Gentile walk looked like. And if we're all honest with ourselves, there was a time in our life, even for those people who came to Christ most you know, early in life, we had this bound up in our flesh. We all are described here in these verses of 17 through 19. We all, in some way, walked like the Gentiles or continued to walk like Gentiles. And so... It's good for us to kind of break this down, that we are are sinners who act out of our nature. It's not that we occasionally do some bad things that make us a sinner. It's that we were born sinners who continually act out our very nature and what's bound up inside us. 
It's good for us to, to talk about these things, about our, our motives and our mind and our morals and how they're kind of just bent away from the presence of God. They, they kind of rebel in their own way against God's goodness and his mercy to us. You know, it's funny to kind of look back and say how many times we've tried to redefine right and wrong. Especially kind of uh, post-enlightenment, we've really done a lot of work to kind of redefine what ethics are. How do we kind of really understand what is right and what is wrong? There was uh, a lot of philosophers here. John Stuart Mill, who talked about the harm principle, which is like no harm, no foul, essentially. Like if, if you're not going to hurt somebody, it's not morally wrong to act in that way. Uh, we, we've talked about uh, the ethics of Immanuel Kant. And Kant says that if there's any selfishness bound up in an action, that's what makes it wrong. There's the idea of utilitarianism, that the greatest amount of good for the greatest amount of people makes an action Moral, But notice here that Paul states that our sin moves us away from God, that this is the very defining of what sinfulness is. It defines our lawlessness, our rebellion against God, to say that our mind, our motives, our morals are all kind of bent away from God's presence. Sin is itself lawless rebellion against God. And if there is an obstacle to communion with God, it's this. Our sinfulness, our orientation away from God that is affecting our whole being. That's what we just laid out. It's not just that my, my heart is affected, and if you tear out the heart and you replace it, I'm good to go. I, I need a restored mind. I need a restored moral, morality. That's the word I was looking for. See, this morning as we hear this, this is, this is decidedly bad news, isn't it? This isn't good news. We, we have no recourse to make ourselves right with God, according to what Paul is saying in these just couple verses. We're kind of on an island. We, we, we're left to kind of reinvent ourselves, and we have no capacity to be able to do that. And so what Paul wants to introduce us to in, in verse 20 in verse, through to verses 24 is God's grace to us in Christ. Look at verses 20 through 24. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. See, the first thing Paul does is in the second section is that he... he objects to this Gentile lifestyle, and he says that he, we've learned Christ differently in verse 20. Paul takes these readers, and he, he kind of reinserts them back into the day in which they came to know Jesus. If we were to kind of go back into the book of Acts, we would find that this church in Ephesus had this massive kind of spell burning right? We've heard of book burnings. This is a spell burning. That these incantations that these Gentile people would use to kind of control their life, they brought them by the heaps to Paul and his uh, group there in Ephesus, and they started burning these incantations, saying, I'm no longer following these idols. I am a believer in Jesus Christ. It was this massive upheaval, upheaval in the church in Ephesus. And so Paul's reinserting him. Is this how you learned Christ? to walk like these Gentiles did. Now, we, we might even remember ourselves that day when we came to know Jesus Christ. 
the joy of God's presence as we knew salvation for the first time. Some of us came to that salvation experience later in life, and we found a rich, deep joy as we repented and turned from our sins. Some of us came to faith earlier in life and and threw out subsequent revelations from God as he's given us mercy in Christ. We found ourselves brought back to God's goodness and his mercy. See, the truth is they learned Christ in such a way where they weren't to continue in these practices of sinfulness. In verse 22, kind of Paul gives us a status check there. Look, Look what he says in verse 21. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him. See, Paul's supposing uh, that if they had not heard about Jesus, these behaviors would be completely natural. But because they had heard about Jesus, they were not fitting adjectives for, of the Christian any longer. You know, when I was six months old, I wore a six-month-old size onesie. That would not be appropriate for me to put on today. When I was six months old, I could not use a toilet. That's not appropriate behavior for me now. When I was six months old, I drooled all over myself. That is not appropriate behavior for me now. See, if you were to assume that Jason Bradshaw was a six-month-old baby, those attributes would be fitting for me. But being that I am nearly a 40-year-old man, that is not appropriate, right? We have learned to grow beyond these things because we have learned Christ. Those former behaviors are no longer fitting for us. So Paul describes in verses 22 through 24 what it is to have learned Christ. And we have a a diagram here for us that we saw before that we were hardened in our heart. We were ignorant in our understanding. We had impurity. But now look at what Paul lays out in verses 22 and 23 and 24. If we had a hard heart in verse 18, verse 23 speaks directly to that. He says... Be rene- or excuse me, verse 22, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. No longer live under the state of hardened heart. Instead, put that off. He says in verse 18 that we were ignorant. Well, look at what verse 23 says. He says, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. If verse 19 described that we were impure, that we Pursued every avenue of immorality, verse 24, and put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. You see how Paul has now said, in Christ, we put on these different patterns. We put on these different behaviors. See, here's the truth this morning, is that when you came to faith in Jesus Christ, you had a hardened heart. Your sin had just so hardened and calcified your heart that it led to an ignorance of mind. You saw the world through the lens of your own hardened heart so that your mind and your eyes did not see the world clearly. And because you had hardened heart, ignorant understanding, you acted out your sinful nature in your behaviors. But when you learned Christ... When you put your faith in Jesus, those hardened heart, that stiffness against the presence of God was crucified with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, was put in a grave for three days, was raised, we were raised with him so that we might be new, so that we might put off that old self because it's been crucified, that we might be renewed in the spirit of our minds because we have the spirit who indwells in us, that we might put on the new self and righteousness and holiness because God has equipped us to do so. Does that make sense? 
So here's the truth this morning, is that Jesus' calling changes us. Jesus' calling changes us. We've seen this morning that we are naturally alienated from God in our sin. We have a heart problem. We have a knowledge problem. We have a morality problem. But it's the voice of Jesus that draws us back. And you're saying, Jason, where are you getting this, this voice of Jesus? What are you talking about? Well, I want to draw our attention to something particular about verse 21. Look at verse 21. He says, assuming that you have heard about him. I don't like to do this because it's dangerous to do this. But I wonder if this might be translated differently. Because the truth is that the word about doesn't exactly exist in the original languages. In fact, John Stott says this, it's a pity that the RSV translates the phrase, you have heard about him. Because there is no preposition. Paul assumes that through the voice of their Christian teachers, they had actually heard Christ's voice. See, what we should find in verse 21 is something more like, you have heard him. We haven't heard about Jesus. We have actually heard the voice of Jesus. That in the New Testament, as the authors had recorded uh, under the supervision of the the Holy Spirit, had recorded the words of God, we hear Jesus himself. According to Stott, this phrasing harkens back to this intimate call of Jesus to his people, that Jesus is the one who's calling us through the beckoning of his scriptures. And this actually stands to reason throughout the rest of the Bible. If you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to John chapter 10, and I want to just pull something out as we look at John chapter 10 and hear about Jesus' metaphor about his relation to his people. John chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 5. Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Jesus is saying, I'm the one who enters through the true door. I'm not the one who tries to steal the sheep. I am the true shepherd. This is verification of who I am. Verse 3, to him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. See, Jesus is our authentic shepherd, as we've seen in verses 1 and 2. He's, he's not these, uh, like these thieves that come in and they break in and steal and destroy, like verse 10 tells us. Rather, they do not know the voice. These sheep do not know the voice of these strangers. This, on the other hand, is the true shepherd. He's not the one who breaks in. He's the one who rightfully has a claim over these sheep. Verse 3, what we see is that Jesus alone calls his true sheep. That's what he says in, in verse 3. My sheep know my voice. See, Jesus himself actually says that sheep understand, they respond to the voice of their Savior. Verse 3 says, to him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. 
When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger will not follow, but they will flee from him, or they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. How do you know you're a sheep? You respond to the voice of the shepherd. How do you know you're not following the thief? Well, you recognize the shepherd's voice. See, Paul uses this term, and he calls it calling. And, and every time he writes a letter to somebody, he thanks God that God has called them. Right? We, we talk about calling in terms of vocation. We talk about calling in terms of what God has called us to do. I feel called to adopt. I feel called to ministry. I feel called to do whatever. But really, when Paul talks about calling, he, he sometimes uses another sense in which God calls all of us. And we remember the parable where at the, the summary, Jesus says, for many are called, but few are chosen. See, God uniquely calls his sheep so that they respond to his voice, that he bellows himself out. He speaks and whispers to us so that we hear the sweetness of his redeeming word and we respond to it in faith. What does it mean for us to hear Jesus? Because there's all kinds of confusion about this, isn't there? Romans 10, right? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ, that when we hear the words of God from the scriptures, we respond in faith as God is working on our hearts, softening us. We might object and say, wait a minute, lots of people hear the words of the Bible, right? We have them in our football stadiums, right? John 3, 16, we, we have them at our Christmas plays at schools. We have all of these words of God, but that's true, but not all people respond with faith. To hear Jesus' voice isn't just to hear the words of the Bible. Instead, it's to hear the claims of Jesus and be quickened to believe in them. It means that our ability to hear and see has to do with our union in, with Christ in his resurrection that when Christ died, he paid for our hard-heartedness, he paid for our ignorance, he paid for our immorality so that we might be restored and be brought to new life. To illustrate this, there's a story in the Old Testament of the prophet Elisha who's trying to raise a boy from the dead. And he goes through all of these machinations to try and just raise this kid uh, from his death. And in the end, he's successful, but he's spreading his body out. He's breathing on him. He's praying. He's doing all of these things. And it stands in contrast to the Savior who in John chapter 11 stands in front of the tomb of Lazarus and says, Lazarus, come forth. And he does. It's by his words that God brings his friend back to life. See, this morning, if we hear the voice of God, if we hear the words of God, we respond to the voice and words of God because God has quickened us to do so. There's many false claims of communion with God. And I want to highlight something this morning that I recognize some of you might have this book on your shelf. And I'm not trying to pick on anybody. I'm not trying to do anything. But I just want to draw attention to this. There's a book by the name of Jesus Calling, it's by a woman named Sarah Young. And you can see the quote on the screen in which she describes why she wrote this book. She said, I began to wonder if I could receive messages during my times of communing with God. 
I had been writing in prayer journals for years, but that was one way of communi- that was one way communication. I did all the talking. I knew that God communicated with me through the Bible, but I yearned for more. Increasingly, I wanted to hear what God had to say to me personally on a given day. This is a quote from the publisher. After many years of writing her own words in her prayer journal, missionary Sarah Young decided to be more attentive to the Savior's voice and begin listening for what he was saying. So with pen in hand, she embarked on a journey that forever changed her and many others around the world. And these powerful pages are the words and scriptures Jesus lovingly laid on her heart, words of reassurance, comfort, and hope, words that have made her increasingly aware of his presence and allowed her to enjoy his peace. We see from, from the pen of Sarah Young herself that we don't just have a desire to hear from God through his word, we have a desire to hear personally God speaking to me. We might get confused on this whole subject, right? What stands out to me is that there's different versions of Jesus' calling that are out there. That God, if God spoke to Sarah Young the first time, she actually redacts and rewrites and and repackages her book for later editions. Has God ever done that? Has God ever redacted what he said? Of course not. We might look and say, well... If Sarah's young quote is, is correct here, Sarah Young's quote is correct here, we might understand that she's saying that the scriptures are insufficient for her, that what God has given us in the word is not sufficient for her to truly commune with God, and that she needs something more. She needs the divine revelation from God to be able to truly commune with him, to have that give and take that she's describing. And I use this example not to pick on Sarah Young or or, or to be needlessly nitpicky about anything, but rather to just exemplify and say, this is why it's so important for us to hear Jesus' voice and to understand what that means, to understand it as the calling that God invites us to place our faith in Jesus, to respond to him as we've heard him through his word, to not sense the need to add to those words in any way, shape, or form, but instead to see these words as sufficient God says in 1 Peter chapter 1, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the precious promises that he's given to us. See, God's word is sufficient so that we might hear the voice of Christ, that we might be called to become his sheep, that we might sense our our union with him in resurrection, that we might place faith in him. We don't need these additional words from God. But those who know Christ, truly respond to his call, don't they? And here in in Ephesians 4, God lays out for us what it looks like for us to commune with God. It puts off the old self. Communion with God is, is no longer given to the obstinance against God. It's no longer marked by the hardness of heart that steers away from the presence of God. Instead, it readily looks to put on the fruit of the Spirit, to be more loving, to be more joyful, to be more peaceful, to be more patient, to be more kind. It's renewed in its mind. It refuses to think only of itself. Instead, it it thinks deeply about the lives of others and the glory of God. It prayerfully asks for the knowledge of God and his will. 
It lives a holy life. It, it tries to put on a new morality. It seeks to eradicate the patterns of sin that so easily entangle us. And in their place, it seeks habits of trust and delight in God. This is what it is to put off our old self and to put on our new self. This is what it li- is to live in a pattern of communion with God. See, if we are to have real communion with God, we must be honest about who we are. We have to be real about those obstacles that exist in our hearts. You want a picture of what it means to commune with God? Let's just consider the life of Jesus. The life of Jesus that went out into the desert without food, that didn't eat for 40 days, that when he was tempted to turn stones into bread, said, no, I'll not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Let's consider the life of Jesus who said, uh, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man who, who went to the Garden of Gethsemane and prayed to his Father that he was one in nature with and said, not as, you, as I will, but as you will. Not my will be done, but thy will be done. That is communion with God. And yet, in his communion with God, Jesus died the death of someone who was obstinate to God. He took on himself the penalty of our obstinance, of our rebellion, of our hard-heartedness. He was raised to new life so that we might put on these patterns and have renewed relationship with God. See, here's my concern I heard a story someone described uh, a couple months ago to me of, of a guy who goes into a coffee shop and he sits down and he starts sitting down with his Bible and his coffee cup and he's taking Instagram photos, you know? You ever see that? And he's trying to get everything perfectly set up and he's getting the filters right and he's taking the pictures. See, here's the thing. is like you and I, we have this inclination to just present ourselves as those who commune deeply with God. The story, as I heard it, was of a man who was reading this deep theology book, and he sat taking a half hour's worth of Instagram photos and then never opened the book. (laughs) We love to present ourselves as righteous, as holy. We love to present ourselves as arrived One of my biggest concerns for myself in the midst of preaching this series is that I would present to you that I have figured out how to commune with God. And it's not true. This week was tough. This week was hard. Times of prayer were difficult. My mind wandered to everything but time and communion with God. I'm reading through the Psalms, and I would read through the Psalm, and I say, What in the world does that mean? Go back and read it again. Still the same place. Here's the truth is that we deeply need communion with God, and it's a blessing when it happens. But let's not make it a mistake to think that we just turn it on and off like it's a switch. 
Let's recognize that these things still are bound up in our nature, our hardness of heart, our impurity of our morals, our ignorant mind. These things are still bound up in us, and we just haven't eradicated them completely yet. That won't happen until we're in God's presence. The thing we need right now is grace. And God, in his grace, allows us the sweetness of communion from time to time. When we have it, we've got to cherish it. But I wish, I wish I could tell you three steps to put on rich communion with God. It doesn't work that way. As we kind of dig into this series, we'll understand that we can do things to position ourselves to commune with God that will help us. But there are times where we do everything that we should be doing and we still find ourselves thirsty for God's presence. We have long, dark nights of the soul. We have periods where we experience depression where we experience hardship and difficulty, and it seems like God is distant from us. That's okay. There's times where you go to pray and your mind wanders. There's times where you go to the Scripture and you don't understand, and that's okay. The truth is that we are united with Christ no matter how we feel about it. Isn't that good news? I want to pray this morning that God gives us a sense of that union with Christ, his overcoming of our own hardened heart, ignorant mind, impure motives, morals. Let's go to God in prayer. God, we pray now. Give us a thirst for your presence, God. We are a people called out by your voice. We wouldn't know your voice without your help. And so, Make us those who strain to hear you. Make us those who thirst for your presence. Lord, as we saw last week, it's, it's good for us to be near you. So God, just train us in righteousness. Help us to put on this new life in Christ that you have given us. Lord, we pray these things in your son's name. Amen.